You are listening to Marquette University's COVID Convos podcast. In each episode, representatives from Marquette's STEM and humanities communities will bring you insights into the pandemic that you may be missing. Marquette University is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The traditional lands of Potawatomi, Ho-Chunk, and Menominee peoples along the southwest shores of Michigami, North America's largest system of freshwater lakes. Where the Milwaukee, Menominee, and Kinnikinnick rivers meet and the people of Wisconsin's sovereign Anishabe, Ho-Chunk, Menominee, Oneida, and Mohican nations remain present. Welcome to another episode of COVID Conversations. I'm Samina Mula. I'm an anthropologist in the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences. And today our conversation is going to be about COVID-19, immigration, and race. And I'm here today with Dr. Jeffrey Coleman and Dr. Aaron Hoekstra. Jeffrey, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Good morning, Samina and Aaron. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Jeffrey Coleman. I'm an associate professor of Spanish in the Department of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures here at Marquette, entering the seventh year here at Marquette. Time flies. <laughs> and Aaron. Hi, my name is Aaron Hoekstra. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Social and Cultural Sciences here at Marquette. I just finished my first year and my research focuses in the area of sociology, specifically on medical sociology and issues of migration. Great to have you with us today. We've been hearing a lot in the news about how COVID-19 impacts different communities really differently. And there's a lot of talk here in Wisconsin, especially we noted that one legislator actually you know, jumped right into the conversation and said that immigrants in his area were part of the, the, the problem of spreading COVID. I wanted us to kind of unpack some of that today. I'm just gonna jump right in because I know a little bit about your research that our listeners don't. And I, both, I know that both of you use the concept of necropolitics, which is a really pithy term, but it's a really useful one. And you use this concept in your research about immigrants. Jeffrey used this when you talk about immigration in Spain. And Erin, you are working in the U.S. context. So I thought I'd ask you to explain to our listeners what necropolitics is and what that concept allows us to understand right now. All right. Well, I would define necropolitics simply as understanding the notion of sovereignty, so how a state or a nation functions in relation to death, right? And so if we think about it in terms of immigration policy in particular, which people are allowed to enter our nation and which are not, and often those who are not are often faced with violence and if not physical death. In other cases, they may be allowed to enter the nation, but are faced with what we would call social death, right? So marginalization, or they're ostracized from communities. And both are detrimental to the immigrant and to the nation as well. And we're seeing that playing out as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks, Jeffrey. That's a great way to think about it. And I would see that Necropolitics really underscores a lot of my research as well. And the way that I look at it in terms of immigration policy and border control in the U.S. looks at specifically migrants who are, on the one hand, killed by the state, but also people who are left for dead or marked for death. 
And so I look at this in the way that border control policy has been implemented in the US. So since 1994, we've been operating under this border control strategy called prevention through deterrence, which advocates and activists in my work colloquially called deterrence by death. Because the idea is that the border is fortified through the building of a wall and other physical infrastructure in a way that forces people to cross the desert, cross the border of the U.S.-Mexico desert in the most harsh, the most dangerous terrain. This has resulted in the finding of the remains of 8,000 people in the desert since 2004. And that's just a fraction of the people because those are the ones that have been found. But by using this prevention through deterrence strategy, which is completely underscored by a necropolitical strategy, the government can claim this kind of moral alibi that these are people who, quote unquote, died of natural causes when there's nothing natural about this. But we also see necropolitics underscoring internal immigration policy as well. So we see it this kind of ineligibility for healthcare for the majority of immigrants in the U.S., which basically has marked migrants as disposable, has essentially marked them for death. Because what do people do when they are ineligible for, for healthcare and get something like breast cancer? Effectively, there's no way to access treatment. So it's, that is like one piece of it, which I look at in my own work. So people then are constrained often to a kind of life in the shadows, and this is very much linked with healthcare access prior to COVID even, because there's a, a collusion between hospitals and immigration enforcement that basically makes healthcare virtually inaccessible. So that in addition to these kind of more visible yet still invisible deaths at the border, there's countless thousands of deaths across the country of migrants as a result of this in immigration policy. So just to summarize your explanations of necropolitics, what you both seem to be speaking to is the ways in which the state actually sets out policies and institutional practices that result in the death of, in this case, migrants. But I think broadly in social science, we can understand necropolitics as the way it applies to all people within a sovereign nation. And it also sounds like what you're talking about is not just specific policies and structures, but also omissions or lack of policies or lack of institutions. And both of these can result in disproportionate killing and dying in the different contexts that you're talking about. When we think about COVID-19 and necropolitics, you know, what can we understand about the kind of patterns that we see about disproportionate illness, death, and dying through this concept. I would start off that some of the disproportionate nature of COVID started even before people were dying in mass. So in the European context, one of the things that we saw very quickly as COVID spread through Spain, Italy, was blaming COVID on racialized communities, which is to say non-white communities. Um, so the Chinese community in Spain was subject to hate crimes when this all started. Most media throughout the world was referring to the coronavirus as the Chinese virus, right? So there was direct linguistic blame on Chinese people, whether or not 
they were in China or, you know, happened to be in other parts of the world. Um, other racialized communities were also blamed. So the African communities in Spain and Italy, Southeast Asian communities, etc. So even before death started, although most of the, you know, mapping that has been done of COVID actually shows that it wasn't racialized communities, and particularly if we connect class to this, right, it was middle class and upper class, white Spaniards, white Italians who were traveling the world, ending up with COVID and bringing it back to their countries. And a similar thing in the U.S., but I would say it was much more drastic in the European case. So definitely before death, right, you already have blame. And I think in the U.S. case, one of the things that we see is that the way the disease is discussed changes once race is brought into the picture. Thank you, Jeffrey. I think you raised some really important points. And part of the issue is that migration, issues of migration, health, and race have been really inextricably linked for centuries, especially in the U.S. So we see this idea of, quote unquote, yellow peril, the idea of Asians and Asian Americans as bearers of disease, and by extension, as kind of unclean and unfit for citizenship. This idea formed the basis of the U.S.'s 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which was immigration policy that specifically barred immigration based on race. And then in the 1910s, we had kind of like mass quarantining along the U.S.-Mexico border and and the like literal disinfecting of migrants of color across the U.S.-Mexico border with pesticides and other chemical agents. So this historical legacy re-emerging as not historical in the current moment, as these tropes of people of color, of migrants of color in particular, as pathologized, as bearers of disease, are very much re-emerging. As Jeffrey said, with the discussion of COVID as the Chinese or the Wuhan virus, or even the, the discussion of it colloquially as the Kung flu, which Trump and other politicians have used. So this really like racially signaling the virus, which has led to a real exponential increase in hate crimes against Asian and Asian Americans in the U.S. So we very much see kind of the discourse around the reopening of, of states once there's this kind of discovery of the disproportionate impact of uh, COVID and the more morbidity and mortality associated with it, communities of color, which are on the whole much more likely to be working as essential, quote unquote, essential workers right now. So we're, are the ones, the communities bearing, the workers bearing the brunt of continued exposure to the virus and thus like continued higher infection and mortality rates. So I've seen various explanations about uh, kind of the reasons for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's uh, impossible to discuss the disproportionate impact of COVID without talking about like insidious racism um, that gives rise to social inequality, health disparities, which leads to higher comorbidities and as a result, higher rates of death. There's so much in both of the answers, in part because you're speaking from these really rich research contexts from Europe and the United States. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about something that seems to be emerging. You know, in social science, a lot of times we talk about racialization, right? This idea of who 
is marked as of or belonging to a race and then how that is associated to other factors like culture, behavior, illness, disease. And so I think something that you're both pointing to quite a lot in your responses is that in this pandemic context, right, a virus needs a host, a host travels in human bodies. A lot of the travel that has been responsible for spreading the disease from um, country to country and community to community has largely been carried out by people with means, right? And quite explicitly non-racialized white communities, whether we're talking about Europe or the United States, not solely, but disproportionately. But there's never a sense or a moment in the pandemic discourse where we think of COVID as a white disease, right? And there are several moments and kind of changes in the public and political discourse around COVID as the Chinese virus or COVID as disproportionately impacting black and brown communities and migrant communities, particularly here in Wisconsin, we hear that. The reopening debates as well play out across the map in really different ways. So when we see images of people at the beach or people filling bars, we tend not to discuss them in racial terms, like, oh, look at all of those white suburbanites, right? That's not what we're hearing in the news. But we do hear that uh, there are a disproportionate number of cases in Latinx and Black communities in Wisconsin, for sure. Why have the, I mean, it's a terrible question. Why has the discourse kind of flowed in that particular way? Why is it so easy <laughs> to kind of hang the responsibility for COVID on certain communities and not others. I would start off with an interesting counterpoint. So the African Union actually was considering banning folks from Europe and the United States from coming to African countries, in part because they many of the heads of state in Africa realized that this was not a disease that was being spread by Black, Brown, or Asian people, but was being primarily spread by Europeans and Americans, mostly of means and non-racialized, right? And so in order to protect their own nations, you, know, you have countries like Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya, and Ethiopia, and so on, who made the decision to kind of stop travel, despite being nations that depend heavily on tourism, in order to protect their own citizens. And so that's an interesting kind of thought and because we're not discussing very much globally how COVID is affecting the global South, right? So Africa, the Middle East, and so on. I do think though, in the European context, I think it comes down to a, a difference in national ethos. And so in the Spanish case, being a nation that depends heavily on what we would call the welfare state, right? Having a public health care system and so on. I think the discussion of race as relating to COVID gets somewhat more nuanced, right? In that everyone has access to health care. And so the nation in wanting to take care of its citizens makes a concerted effort to give health care to everyone <laughs> in order for it not to come back into the communities that it 
wants to protect, even if it means protecting the people you might not necessarily care about, you have to protect them in order to protect everybody else, which is somewhat the opposite of what we're seeing in the US, which explains the spike that we are having now in thinking about the kind of individualistic nature of American culture more generally, but also once you compound this with race and understand, oh, it, oh, it affects the Latinx community and the Black community, oh, then we're okay, so we can reopen, right? And so that seems to be the discussion we're having here, whereas in Spain and Italy, it was very much locked down the whole nation for as long as we have to, and then everybody can come out. <laughs> Right, which is what we're seeing now. I mean, Spain, everyone's back to work, back in restaurants, back doing things, you know, still with some level of social distancing and such, but very much approaching, you know, what was normal at the beginning of this year. Yes, I mean, I think your question really points to this kind of unmarked nature of whiteness. But I read something about how the kind of outbreak in the Sherman Park neighborhood in Milwaukee was traced to one neighbor's interaction with like wealthy white affluent suburban knight of Milwaukee who like had been tra had traveled to Europe and contracted the disease and essentially that's how the spread started right but we don't see that because the the racial tropes of disease and like racial pathologization that's happened historically and continues doesn't account for whiteness you know white people aren't aren't unclean and unfit in the same way, right? In the way that these racial racial and racist tropes are constructed. And so very much that's not a part of the discussion of the disease. You know, I wanna mark a couple of things here. I, it's, it's really well understood in scholarship that, you know, one of the other results of racialization, particularly when you're talking about health is when we think of communities that are more vulnerable, right, to healthcare, crises and episodes, we understand that it, it's not biological. I mean, maybe seems like a really silly thing to say to the two of you as scholars, right? But the problem isn't in the bodies or the immune systems of the people who are being infected and who are getting sick and dying. The problem really comes from all of the things that you guys have outlined, access to healthcare or not, exposure to um, people who are likely to be infected or not, ability to travel, your essential worker status. And I think that is really how a lot of us have understood racialization. Once we get into the public discourse where we're talking about Black and Latinx communities as if there's something intrinsically wrong with those communities, and that's why they bear the disproportionate burden that concept of racialization is kind of complete in a way, right? Like we've now located all of those social problems like in the bodies of people when actually what we understand is happening is a whole set and series of social mechanisms. And I think it's really important to, to highlight that because when we're talking about immigration, you both have pointed out that we're talking about people from various racial and ethnic backgrounds. But even the way that everyone becomes conflated into, you know, the Latinx community when migrants are flowing to the U.S. from various different places, geographies, class, status, and backgrounds, right? Or, you know, the Black community, which is not monolithic in Milwaukee or anywhere else. Um, this is the way that, you know, racialization, again, kind of becomes complete. So I wanted to kind of point that out in what you're describing. 
And I wanted to move us in a slightly different collection. I don't want to center myself, but I will share that my family was undocumented and I grew up in a mixed status family in the United States. And so some of the problems that you've been discussing, I think do have you know, this deep history that you've pointed out. And it's very clear to me too that you know, in relationship to the kind of negative dynamics that we're talking about, blaming, exclusion, violence, right? The necropolitics, the letting die of communities of color. There are also strategies in migrant communities for surviving, for surviving COVID, for surviving racism. And so I wondered, had you noticed any particular strategies for surviving that are emerging in different immigrant communities? Definitely. I would say in the Spanish case, one of the things that we see pretty early on, particularly from the Asian community, is this notion of, there's a hashtag going around, that I, I am not a virus. And there is a very famous pop star He's also a columnist in one of the largest newspapers in Spain, Chenta Sai. And he, during Madrid Fashion Week, which took place right at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, came, comes down the runway and takes off his shirt and has painted on his body, I am not a virus. And those kinds of notions of resistance are particularly important to thinking through how do we remove the racialization of this disease, right? And especially recognizing, particularly in Spain, that the, there, yes, there was some disproportionality with regards to race, but that's actually much harder to track in Spain because there aren't racial statistics in Spain by law. And so what we mostly see is that it's killing white people. So maybe that's why the response in Spain might have been a little different from the U.S., and also what we're seeing, and, and this also ties into the kind of anti-racist discussions we're having as a result of the killing of George Floyd, is that with the protests that have been happening in major cities in Spain, the Black community and other racialized communities have been very clear about if you're coming to these protests, wear a mask because COVID is still a thing, and we can attack you know, racism and destroy racism at the same time that we resist um, you know, resist spreading this disease further into our communities. Yeah, I think thinking through survival strategies and community-based resistance is so important. Otherwise, study and examination of necropolitics and migrant racialization seems like there's no resistance, there's no resilience, there's no agency against it, and that couldn't be further from the truth. And so I think the the work that I have done is pre-COVID so far that has looked at kind of informal networks of medical professionals, of people who were doctors and nurses in their home countries but aren't able to practice medicine in the U.S., that there are, there's already a lot of informal medical care happening, a lot of even uh, like indigenous healing practices. And act, so there's actually health care and health provision happening on informal levels that's sometimes not seen. There's also a very much a speaking back to the necropolitical strategies of the state and a resistance and, and like, you know, decades of organizing at a grassroots level to really change things. And we've seen that 
that that organizing has had effects on different like policies, different enforcement tactics, um, and has sparked positive change in that way. And then finally, there's a whole network of mutual aid that's basically groups that are organized and organizing on a level of community solidarity to really uh, redistribute resources and make sure that people have food, that they have, you know, like social support and material support um, in absence of access and entitlement to social services. And so that is most definitely continuing and is elevated in terms of the scope of it under COVID. I just wanted to say more in terms of the racial racialization of COVID. In my own work, I talk about immigration policy and the necropolitics of border control and immigration policy as kind of a policies of what, what I call a pragmatic eugenics. So like eugenics in kind of all but name in the way that it contributes to the death of migrants in a very real way. And so I think we see this being expanded and extended in terms of in the times of, of COVID, where you have undocumented agricultural workers with letters from their employers basically saying, I am an essential worker. And they're instructed to carry these letters around and present them to any sort of immigration enforcement or anyone questioning like their mobility under a shelter in place order. So we have precarious migrant communities whose precarity has been politically and socially constructed so that they are vulnerable, exploitable, expendable workers. But now the reality of the essentialness of their labor is explicit under COVID. And so you have essential yet expendable migrant laborers who are still continuing to work, still continuing to make sure that there's food on the table, that supply chains aren't disrupted in a very real way. And so I think COVID is showing in a way that kind of speaks back to these strategies, the like centrality that uh, low-wage migrant workers play in making sure that everything continues for the rest of us under COVID. I'm really glad that you remembered that last point. I think it's really chilling point to kind of end with and it reminds us that there's a lot of motivation for organizing for being thoughtful for truly understanding the complex mechanisms that lead into these easy but ultimately irresponsible narratives that assign blame to the wrong people and kind of use very pernicious and deep historical narratives about immigrants and race in order to further the discussion. Yeah, and I would say that COVID actually opens up additional opportunities for resistance because the essentialness of low-wage workers is that much more obvious and that much more essential in this time. So friends of mine are working with some Somali migrants who work in an Amazon warehouse in Minnesota. And this organization of mostly Somali migrants who work in this warehouse uh, to like promote better working conditions for themselves and that sort of thing, but also to really lead the 
lead the four of organizing Amazon across the nation, if not the world, is happening from this very small group of organized workers who are recognizing how much more power they have in this current moment um, and are using it to really leverage additional uh, like protections for workers in their warehouse. I think we also have seen, you know, with the Amazon, Amazon's an interesting case, warehouse workers in New York City really amazing kind of racial solidarities among workers too, where you have immigrant workers who are Latinx or who are African migrants also organizing with Black workers. And that solidarity is not lost on us, I think, in this present moment where every day people have been marching for Black lives in cities all across the nation. And so you see some of that also starting to manifest in workers' responses to being put at risk to keep the economy going. So thank you both so much for your time. Jeffrey, I wanna give you an opportunity if you have one more thought. I would just like to add in that these notions of resistance are are sparking kind of a global movement. And I think the fact that you have COVID and then compounded by this kind of anti-racist movement as a result of the killing of George Floyd creates a perfect storm for racialized communities around the world to come together and fight against racism, whether it's in you know labor or healthcare or education or what have you, you are starting to see a real coalescence around these notions such that you know these these rights, right? These things that all people should have access to really should be accessible to all people. And if they're not, there's a problem. And I think many people are starting to see the disproportionality of these issues, whether it be in the US, Spain, or otherwise. And I think that's a, the best part about this. As, you know, as horrible as this year has been for so many around the world, I think there is some glimmer of hope in that we are starting to see the dismantling of certain institutions that have continued to detrimentally affect racialized communities. Thank you so much, Dr. Jeffrey Coleman and Dr. Aaron Hoekstra. I'm Dr. Samina Mola. If you're curious about Jeffrey Coleman and Aaron Hoekstra's research and what it looked like before COVID, you should definitely check out Dr. Coleman's book, The Necropolitical Theater, Race and Immigration in the Contemporary Spanish Stage, which is available through Northwestern University Press. And Erin Hoekstra has a recent article in City and Community called The Civic Side of Diversity, Ambivalence and Belonging at the Neighborhood Level. A quick follow-up, a type of necropolitical postscript. On the day we recorded this, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement announced that international students studying at universities in the U.S. under F-1 visas will have to return to their home countries if their coursework is online in the fall. We hope to follow up on this in a future episode of COVID Conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of COVID Convos. You can learn more about this podcast and the research being done at Marquette University by visiting the Research and Innovation website at marquette.edu. You can reach the podcast via email at covidconvos at marquette.edu. Music for this episode is Phase 2 by Zylo Zyko.